National was heading for their landslide, and uh, Labour were trying to build up their capacity. Next minute, Winston, big time. So what I've never told you is that I had to tell a lie to keep my financial life under control. Your understanding of the legality of your campaign so far? Oh, we think it's um, pretty legal. I am not the first woman to multitask. But kia ora koutou, welcome <laughs> to First Past the Pod. So, Re- Rex, have you, you having a good time today, Rex? 12th? I'm a little bit hungover today. So I- am I. Um, and that gets noted uh, in our interview today. So mm. basically, this episode is just a interview that we've had um, with former top candidates and now um, co-founders of an organisation called Civic, which is um, pushing for change around official information transparency in New Zealand. So that's the two co-founders we're talking to are um, Jessica Hammond um, and Jenny Condi. Uh, so yeah, it's a really interesting interview. We've just recorded it. Um, and watch how Rick, we're at Rick's work uh, and we normally have issues with the church next door. So, you know, they have a very musical service. Um, but today, Rick, we had some issues with motorbike store down below. So these sound quality issues, and I mean, this is part of the reason why you know um, you sh- we can now you can now support the podcast through press patron, uh, and then we can you know raise thousands of dollars to buy a studio. We've <laughs> <laughs> got high high ambitions, um, but no, seriously, um, we were going to talk about the budget, but plenty of people have talked about the budget. There's um, countless other podcasts and articles and things like that on the budget so we won't um, dive into that we might dive into some of the little peculiar things like the uh, new unit to look at party policies costings and things like that the independent fiscal council or you know institution of some sort that was a little known part of the budget responsibility rules between labor and greens there's the five rules and then below it it's sort of like and we're going to set up this new unit so they've just come out in the budgets um sort of saying they're going to consult more on it later this year so uh, yeah, yeah we can talk about that on a future episode but for now should we just get straight into the interview um with i th- it was actually sorry it's dr jenny condi she's got a phd in accounting i think um and there's a little accounting reference in the, in the interview um, and Jessica Hammond alright so uh, welcome along today uh, we've got two members of Civic with us do you want to introduce yourselves kia ora, I'm Jessica Hammond and I'm Jenny Condy it's awesome to have you both here. Thank um, you. Very sorry, I'm very late to this uh, discussion, mm-hmm. um, but thank you very much for waiting. Ruff um, was at the treasury after party, but <laughs> after party last night, um, and yeah, That's it was epic. a yeah, it was a, it was a big night. Um, yeah, I remember mine being pretty epic. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, even though I don't even go to treasury uh, anymore, but. Um, <laughs> That's that's another thing. Um, so yeah, wanted to talk to you about your latest project. But um, do you both mind discussing, you know, um, how you got to this point? Because uh, people might know you from the um, last general election as top candidates, and how you sort of got interested in top, and then how that sort of connects to your your current work and, and things like that. Jenny, you want to? I can. Um, well, I got involved with, with the Opportunities Party because I really uh, wanted to get involved with politics and tackle some of these big long-term problems that are just hanging around and nobody seems willing to talk about. Um, you know, I was really impressed with Gareth's willingness to call a spade a spade and, and talk about <laughs> some of the really um, 
some some unpopular truths um, was really really impressed me. So that that was the things that that really brought me to top. Um, but obviously, as it went on, it became clear that there was a values clash um, there. No one would be too surprised by that. Yeah. Um, what kind of values? <laughs> like how you run a party kind of thing, or is it actual political values and things like that? Yeah. So part of it is 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 very much about how you treat people. Yeah. And also, I suppose about the kinds of evidence that you are willing to pay attention to. So yeah. So um, the people involved with Top had a common interest in following best evidence for developing policy. Yeah. But you also might be interested in evidence for how to run an effective campaign. Right. That is actually going to encourage people to vote for you um, yeah so following best practice across the board not just yeah yeah and developing your specific yeah. policy not platform. just not just evidence-based policy but evidence-based campaigning yeah mm-hmm. yeah and there's also sort of some some the kinds of uh the things that make good evidence-based policy um you know being able to have robust discussions and disagree uh, those are sorts of things that you probably want to have throughout an organisation. Yeah. Mm. And we didn't have much luck with expressing disagreement. Sure. So, so I guess that's what motivated you to, to set up Civic. Um, and do you want to tell us a bit about what, what Civic is? Yeah. So, well, when we uh, left top late last year, we, um, we knew we wanted to carry on uh, progressing some of these issues that we really ca- really care about and changing the way politics happens in New Zealand. So we started the next big thing, uh, which was always a placeholder so that we could kind of co-create. Facebook our, group. Sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what it was, outward facing. There's yeah. also a group of people okay, who, who yeah. have been um, working together for months on um, spending a lot of time talking about our values and our mission and how we were going to work together and what we were trying to achieve. And having a lot of conversations with our followers on the Facebook page about what they cared about. And we were focusing, it was really clear that you know we wanted to be able to um, address long-term, long-standing problems in a way that addressed the root course, course rather than uh, tinkering around the edges. Mm-hmm. But the more we tried to uh, get down to what the root causes were, we kept hitting up against, well, the, the system, the democratic systems we have are never going to allow us to address this. So rather than focusing on all of the many uh, long-term problems and root causes, we think we actually need to have a, have a really strong foundation before we can address any of them. And did you come to this idea quite quickly was it a natural flow on from after the election and and you know we're going to set up this thing or was it did you actually think about here's a range of different options like you know maybe even trying to have a a version of top that also has evidence-based um sort of party processes and things like that like an actual political party or like a different you know i guess there's a range of different platforms you could have chosen to go with were they on the table yeah, everything's been on the table. Yeah. Um, and most things are still on the table for yeah. us, um, you know, in terms of what the organisation might be or become. Right. Um, we've very much um, nailed down our values and what we care about and what are the issues that we care about. And we've, we've narrowed our focus particularly towards how do we protect and strengthen democracy. 
Um, but how that plays out in an organizational sense, whether we're a charitable trust or a political movement or a political party or some other combination of things, um, is still, from our point of view, still on the table. Because it comes back, I guess, again, it's for us it's about what works. So we're going to try some stuff and see if we get traction. And if we do, then that's going to give us some more information about where we should go from here. Cool. And so, like... Um, the Opportunities Party, Gareth Morgan, you know, has, has a lot of money, poured, you know, over $2 million into that project. Um, and, uh, but this has all been done off the, off, you know, voluntary hours and work and things like that. Yeah, it? yeah. Well, um, all the people who have been working on this have been volunteering their time. And um, I, I was working out, like, how many hours and what people would get paid to do, you know, what their hourly rates were. And it's, you know, we're up at about $80,000 worth of free labour at this point. Um, so for everybody, the six people who have been really... So just a bit of fun accounting. It's a bit of fun accounting, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, that... that so you know, people have been donating a lot of a lot of time, and and it's really a personal passion project for the people involved. To, um, because all of us got involved with Top because we think that there are big problems that we want to get our hands dirty trying to fix, um, and that didn't change just because we had a parting of ways. Mm. And I guess you don't want to be constrained by what you know, like a a rich white man wants to. Yeah, we've talked a lot about um, when we look at fundraising. How do we how do we make sure that we're balancing out if we if we get a big donor or a big offer, which would be amazing. But also, we we've talked about the issues about how do you make sure that you don't get captured by those things, so that the organisation isn't um, having its direction and values determined by where the money comes from. So, are you focused just at the moment on getting? Um, campaigns going we can talk in a minute about your campaign around official information and, and strengthening um, the transparency around official information in New Zealand but is, is that the main focus of Civic at the moment around those campaigns or is there also building up a hierarchy and having to you know it's, it's sort of interesting just seeing behind the scenes of these um, early days of these sort of NGOs or um, groups that are trying to push for certain change like what's what's the key things for, for you yeah, so, well, there are six of us at the moment who yeah. are putting in a lot of hours and then there are some other people around the edges who are um, contributing their time and skills for various things. And I suppose the six of us you might think of as a board, but we don't have any more structure than that at the moment. We're um, learning f- from some people who have used distributed networks and... Um, uh, what's the the circles thing? Oh, sociocracy. <laughs> sociocracy. <laughs> uh, different kinds of models we we might use. Um, so we don't for decision making. You mean, or for yeah. the structure of the, the organisation? Yeah, for, but, for yeah. both decision making yeah. and for how you distribute uh, information. Yeah. Uh, you know, and decision making power and authority and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I'm I'm quite interested in the um, you were saying before, like you identified that there were structural barriers to getting the things done in our democracy like what do you see as those main structural barriers Mm. so many yeah Yeah. (laughs) um you know i think the big picture stuff is when you look overseas for me at brexit and trump and those kinds of things you have to say that that the pressures in those countries that led to those kinds of outcomes exist here as well um, and and that that we need to, as a democracy, get ready to handle some of those things. Um, but I mean, if you look at the the details on paper, we, everybody says our democracy is fantastic. You know, a lot of these rankings, we're at the top, we're number one, we're in the top ten, we're something like that. But so much of it is just 
is just that we tick the boxes and we don't actually, you know, we don't actually live in some of those principles in terms of um, how those things get done. So a lot more around open government and transparency. Um, we've got a, a lot of issues to deal with around lobbying and, and money for that um, that is happening around lobbying. We saw that happening with fresh water recently. Um, is becoming a much bigger issue in New Zealand than it's ever been before. So, you know, and obviously we had experience coming up against the uh, 5% threshold. Um, so there, I think there are issues about mm. about how MMP functions. Yeah, in a um, three-year electoral cycle, it's really hard to do anything that, um, that goes beyond three years, and there are long-term problems coming at us that it doesn't feel like we're ever going to get any real action on under the current settings. I also worry a lot about the um, neutrality of the public service and the sort of uh, pressures that public servants are under and about public servants uh, feeling afraid to be involved in politics. Um, and, and I think New Zealand, a lot of people don't realise that we, we lack a lot of the checks and balances that other people's democracies have. We don't have an upper house, which some people say is great because it means that we don't get bogged down with that sort of stuff. But it also means that, you know, our, our government can pass a bill under urgency in the middle of the night um, that there is no, there's no checks against. Um, and even the, the Supreme Court has only been given the, the, the authority to send it back to Parliament to reconsider it. Um, so, so I think there are a lot of questions around... The big fundamental things like a constitution, um, and you know who's going to enforce that constitution, and, and those kinds of distributed authority issues as well. And there are a lot of people, you know. We also worry about um, disengagement amongst voters, uh, you know, and there can be very, very good reasons for young people in particular to to feel disengaged from politics. And I think it's probably a a softer goal we have to make politics fun and <laughs> make people feel like it's something that they would want to talk about and be involved in and can be involved in and can actually make a difference in. Yeah. One of the things that um, uh, Jess Barrett and Shaw and I were talking about on Twitter the other day was how intimidating some of the processes that we've got are, yeah. like select committee processes. So I guess is that sort of like what you're getting at is that we have these systems on paper that mean that people can participate but in reality they don't function because there are so many barriers to actually participate in those those things. Yeah, I mean uh, like why shouldn't we have um, submissions by Facebook or you know why, why can't we have things that are much more um, enabling of people to participate in democracy why is that not a, a thing that, that could exist and, and how do we make um, democracy our democracy function in a way that's more that people participate in it more and it's not just about your one vote every three years and that's yeah. it um, you know we've seen people in other countries making progress around citizens assemblies and other kinds of more direct democracy and more participation um, yeah so I- I mean, there's lots of stuff you've raised here, you know, deliberative <laughs> democracy and uh, stuff around the the voting thresholds, 5%, and a whole range of things. But you've decided to focus at least initially on official information. Do you think, what, what was the particular reasoning behind focusing on official information? Do you think that's a particular weakness in New Zealand at the moment? 
Hmm. I think there were a couple of things that led us to the decision to focus on on strengthening freedom of information in New Zealand. Um, one of them was that there's been a lot of, of chatter and discussion amongst journalists and amongst um, political commentators. Bryce Edwards wrote about it in November last year as being a big issue. Um, there's a lot of people talking about it as being a real problem and yet nobody has seemed to have picked it up and run with it as being an issue. And we kind of, we get that. Like, official information is not the sexiest policy you could choose to try and get people excited about. Um, I mean, I love those redacted papers. They're, <laughs> they're beautiful. Yeah. 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 Um, so the so there's block. lots of people. Yeah, the black black pages, pages yeah. and pages of blacked out text. Um, so there's, <coughs> there was a lot of people already talking about problems in this area, and we knew that there had already been a law commission review and an ombudsman's review, so it seemed like there was probably some policy that existed in the in the area. Um, so, so there were some practical things around that, but as well, I think it's just it's a really important issue. It's one of these issues that um, it cuts across the right-left divide, which is something that we care about a lot, having come out of top. Um, you know, I've never voted on the left, and Jessica's never voted on the right, but it turns out we agree on about ninety percent of stuff. <laughs> um, and and freedom of information is an issue that people care about right across the political spectrum. And so to break it down for people, like the current um, Official Information Act uh, allows people to request uh, any information that is produced by any government department or ministerial office um, with the exception of parliamentary services and some other random little carve-outs. Well, they're technically kind of not part of the government. Well, they, they say they're not part of the government. Um, but there was a there was a law commission review into how the Official Information Act mm. worked that recommended that, that um, parliament and... Um, uh, the officers of parliament should be included in the official information act so there's a bit of debate around that but yeah as Rick was saying basically um, and, and it's something that I didn't really know about until university like I had no idea um, and I didn't really know how to use it properly until I actually became a public servant myself and saw the other side but you can request anything of, of anyone you can try and get information about you know what advice has been received recently about cheese or something like that or anything anything you want (laughs) basically um and it is a really useful tool yeah rick a really fun thing that you can do as well is you can now submit oaa requests via twitter which i quite like doing so you just tweet at an agency and they have to um take it as as a request which is often good fun yeah yeah. So, so, yeah. We, so we, while a big part of this is the Official Information Act, we want to improve freedom of information overall because uh, a big part of the picture that that you'll know about Ralph as a public servant, the ex public servant, <laughs> is that uh, uh, there's also the matter of what information gets created and how much of it gets recorded and how accurately it gets recorded. And so we want to look at the Public Records Act as well. And, uh, you know, one of the things that can happen with the Official Information Act is that people can get very cagey, uh, public servants can get very cagey, ministers' offices can get very cagey about what gets written down in what form. So this is the post-it note effect type thing where, where the well, official... Normally there's a call or something like that. Yeah. Like text message, takes, phone yeah. call, giving giving your advice in some way that, that won't be covered by the OAA. I mean, it is well, covered, but but no but, one yeah. no <laughs> one remembers to request the post-it notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or if, uh, if you ask for the thoughts that are in people's heads or the yeah. verbal advice... No one's um, ever remembered what it was. <laughs> well, yeah. people... 
just conveniently forget or something because I have yeah. um, you know NGOs or something that I've worked for and, and you know helped in my in my personal life they I've, I've actually suggested to them that they ask for like everything including like the thoughts yeah. behind I put behind it, something like any thoughts that officials had that are not written down and stuff like that but it's never really come back with anything good because mm. yeah people conveniently forget yeah. yeah so I mean so what are you what are you arguing for there that, that this information should be more systematically recorded yeah yeah that, uh, I mean yeah, we we need to be recording the information um, accurately and also helpfully, recording it yeah. in, in a way that makes it easy to understand and easy to find. And then, when it comes time to releasing it, releasing it in a way that is easy to understand and easy to use. Yeah, and it's it's one of the big challenges if you're going to look at reforming freedom of information in this country, is how do you do it in such a way that it doesn't increase the chilling effect on the public service because we know that we know already that public servants don't write things down simply because they know they don't want them to be released publicly um, and we know that that happens and it's it's not good for the public service it means that the advice that ministers are getting may not be as good as it could be um, and it comes back to this balancing of free and frank advice so we're really conscious of of that as well as we look at how do you how do you strengthen um, freedom of information you have to think about how you do it in a way that fits with with, with the culture. And, and how do you think you do that without putting rules around how media could report on things or whatever and other constraining things? Yeah. I mean, so do you want to talk about the principles-based versus rules-based? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, in New Zealand, we've got a, a principles-based approach to official information, which is that um, the principle is anything can be requested and information gets withheld on certain grounds. Um, in other countries, they use a rules-based approach, which is that any information that meets this criteria, so for example, every cabinet paper, um, has to be released by a certain date. And so there's, there's that's two set different approaches about how you can go about official information. Um, and the policy that we're looking at at the moment, it would be some kind of, um, of looking at, at actually using both of those things in, in tandem, continuing to keep the, the principles-based approach, which means that you can request any information, but also increasing the amount of information that is required to be released or that has to be proactively released by departments. So this was, I mean, this was part of what the, the, the new government came in and said, look, we're going to have this open government approach and we're going to proactively release cabinet papers and, and all of these things and then like it hasn't happened yet and even the advice on how to become more of an open government was heavily redacted and so like why do you why do you think that is yeah well we actually did our we did our own official information act request to, to Claire Curran's office she's the minister for open government asking on all the all the advice that she had since becoming minister about changing the OIA um, and most of it came back redacted um, so I think it's. That was you guys. <laughs> oh, I think we're not. We're not the only ones who've done it. I think they've been And you know, they said at the beginning that Claire Curran made a public statement saying that she was looking to to dust off the Law Commission report and have a look at those recommendations. But just last week, Andrew Little has come out with a public statement saying that they have no plans to to um, revise or review the Official Information Act. Um, so it's gone from yeah, we're probably going to have a look at that to actually that's not on our priority list at the moment so there is um people who say well the official information act is you know 
reasonably good as it is like there could be some tweaks but we don't need to change it we need to change the culture and so you had the um, ombudsman uh, the previous ombudsman um, do a report called it's not a game of hide and seek I think uh, where um, Dame Beverly Wickham I think she was recommending just stronger leadership in the public sector and, and sort of more practices around um, entrenching proactive release and, and doing all those kind of things in sort of public sector processes um, and having better guidelines and all that kind of stuff and you see that work being pushed at the moment um, in the public sector and there was a report that you were just talking about with um, the new ombudsman and, and the head of DPMC where they are looking at processes and things. Do you see hope I guess in those um, internal uh, with you know the ombudsman working together with the public sector to try and get better processes around the OAA, um, is that something, or or do you think that's never going to go far enough? Now, having a a good strong ombudsman is really fantastic and that's extremely helpful um, but we would not like our whole um, this incredible uh, tenet of our, of our democracy and of, of holding government to account to be dependent on one person who happens to be awesome at the time and really who has um, limited powers I mean no enforcement powers for instance so yeah there's a lot of things that are really good about the Official Information Act but we would like to make some changes to legislation that will help support that culture change yeah. So it, I mean, it is really hard for it's really hard for public servants and for managers in the public service to push back against ministers' offices when they don't want information to be made public. And if the law could support them to do that, uh, to be able to say, "I would love to help you, minister, but I don't want to go to jail," <laughs> or, or you know, maybe not. It doesn't may not have to be that extreme, but. Um, I, yeah, like I, I found it interesting in in Dave Beverly Wakeham's report. It's not a game of hide and seek. Uh, that that she said, oh, she found examples of um, ministers' officers saying, you know, this should be redacted or whatever. But that all the chief executives. Um, Said that, oh no, you know, when it comes down to it, we 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 follow, you know, what what is best, you know, the actual law, and and um, decide, you know, to release it. But I guess that's not my um, <laughs> experience in the when I was in the public sector no. about how things work. Um, and so, yeah, that that is an area that that probably needs strengthening up. Yeah, and interestingly, we we spoke to someone who submitted to that review and felt that actually some some instances they had submitted where it was clear there was. Political Political interference, yeah. um, and that that political interference had been successful, yeah. um, but the final review essentially denied that that ever happened, and they felt very aggrieved that the final report essentially seemed to, you know, redact. Interesting. So evidence even, to the contrary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that was that was a big concern as we started meeting and talking to some people. You know, I'd read that report and thought, oh well, she says it's basically just a culture change, and, and at the end of the day, everybody's following the law. But when you start talking to people who are at the coalface, that is not what they say. Hmm. Um, and it's it's at all kinds of levels. Sometimes it's at the level of the minister's office essentially just saying, I want you to redact this section and I expect you to find grounds to do it on. Um, but it goes right back to we were talking about actually creating the information in the first place where um, some minister's offices, we've had examples where minister's offices have asked officials to change the title of a briefing because they know that journal that journalists um, send in an OAA request regularly saying what are all the titles of the briefings the ministers had this week or this month 
and they didn't want that one to sound interesting. So could you please change the title of that briefing to something boring and innocuous so that the journalist won't request it when they see the title on the list? Um, so the, the kind of, of political influence that's happening around this is at, at a lot of different levels. How do you, yeah, I was just interested, like, there certainly does seem to be some, some problems, but how do you, we talked before about the balance there, making sure that officials can still provide free and frank advice, and there is a withholding ground in the Official Information Act at the moment to provide mm. free and frank advice, but, you know, that ability to um, have that strong relationship between ministers and officials where the, all the truth comes out, um, is, is that something that needs to be balanced off against transparency and that kind of thing? And how would you do that best if, if you try to strengthen the OAA? That's a huge question. So. It is. Um, and it's one that we've been grappling with. I think, you know, this is not a, a simple issue. There are legislative changes that are needed. There are definitely culture changes that are needed. That's not a fool's errand. You know, the work yeah. that's happening around culture change is absolutely essential. But I don't think it's going to be enough on its own. Yeah. Um, we have to look at, at legislative changes that will support that and, and push it further in that direction. Um, and we need to think the whole time when we're looking at what, how we might make these changes, how is that going to impact on free and frank advice? Yeah. You know, how, do we, how do we balance these things out, the transparency yeah. versus free and frank advice? And people have, um, you know, hold very differing views about how you balance those two things out and which one is, is most important or, mm-hmm. and how you, you get around to accomplishing those things. Um, you know, some people argue that, for example, one of the grounds is, is that you can withhold it because the decision is is still under or, uh, information is still being a uh, decision still being made. I can't remember what the ground. Consideration. Active consideration. Well, th- Thank you. That one's quite interesting actually because active consideration that's not a ground. It's how people interpret <laughs> a certain. There's a sub clause which says the confidentiality of advice tender between ministers and officials or something like that. But people call it the active consideration ground, but yeah. it's not actually. It's unclear what that actual <laughs> section means at all. But yeah. people say that and but it's actually not it doesn't allow you to withhold anything that's yeah. un- actively being considered yeah and um, and we know that for example active consideration often gets used to withhold um, advice that's been sitting around for two or three years because it's still un- because they still haven't made a decision so they argue it's still under active consideration yeah. and then like it can't still be under active consideration it's been three years there's the argument that uh, you know when something is in an, an under active consideration that is the perfect time to have public scrutiny and have public involvement yeah exactly yeah and you know it's, so, it's, it's all well and good ask, asking for the information months down the track after decisions have been made but you know wouldn't the government like yeah. to have the public and involved I, guess, yeah. I mean that's where in the OAA there's those grounds saying you know that you can withhold under, under these grounds but um, if the public interest outweighs it then you should right. release but ultimately that decision around public interest is being made by minister's office or by departments depending on where the OAA goes to and then there's also yeah not any enforcement about if they consistently um, are being really really conservative or something like that and you know the ombudsman yeah. might ro- make a ruling um, but yeah are you interested, what kind of sort of enforcement yeah. would you see of, of people consistently not releasing when they should. Public yeah. interest is so important because then there's section, is it uh, six or seven, where there is no public interest. Yeah, yet. the national security stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. so, so there's, yeah. there's uh, some of the um, most important information in New Zealand, there is no, no public interest test at all, which is something a lot of people, including us, would like to see changed. Um, we're also looking at whether we should turn around the public interest test. So at the moment, you 
have to release this information when it's requested unless there is public interest in withholding it. Am I saying this the right way around? So you have to release information unless there's grounds to withhold it. Oh, but and then even, you have to, even sorry, if yes. there's grounds to withhold it, you might still have to release it if it's deemed to be in the public interest yeah, to yeah, release it. Yeah. Yeah. But we would like to see that potentially turned around to say that, in fact, you, the public interest test should be that you should be able to demonstrate there's a public interest in withholding the information. Right. But you have so, to demonstrate there's a public yeah, interest, yeah. In th- that the public interest is being served by confidentiality. Um, Rather than just the private interests of mm. particular you know. ministers or particular government exactly. departments or whatever. So, so we've got you know the, we've got privacy considerations, which is reasons why we withhold. We've got sometimes commercial considerations and, and information that's you know commercially sensitive. Um, there are yeah. there are issues where we withhold information that. Um, Noisy motorbikes. Yeah, we, <laughs> there's there's situations where we're allowed to uh, public services allowed to withhold information if it feels it would it would make it less likely they would receive that information in future. So if it's gonna you know, damage a, a source that they need. So there's a bunch of reasons like that where actually you can say, yeah, that's there are good reasons why actually keeping that information confidential is in the public interest. Yeah. Um, so that that is a way that you could look at reforming it to turn that around. Uh, but you were asking about Ralph, enforcement. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I was, yeah. I was going to answer answer a different, <laughs> oh, different point. That's been on my mind for a while. Which is, is is why isn't anyone doing doing anything about it? And I think it's. It comes back to one of these issues where democracy doesn't work so well because anything to do with um, government transparency or accountability is really easy to complain about when you're in opposition. But when you're actually in charge where you could make the changes, you are exactly um, the person who who has the interest in in reducing transparency and accountability. And that goes for whoever is in government. So that's something where we really need a transpartisan kind of support for these these principles of you know we need both the, the government and the opposition to be able to say actually it is in the country's interest and we are in government for the right reasons because we are good people who care about New Zealand and we think we should be held to account. Quite like transpartisan is good. Mm. You know, not just by, not just two different points. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, no. yeah. yeah. Um, But yeah, is, uh, is there particular enforcement mechanisms or anything like that that you would help that process? I guess that was the, the question. Yeah, we've talked with some people about, we haven't made any firm decisions, but we've, we've talked about some ideas around fines. There was a, a private members bill that, that proposed finding um, people who didn't comply. I don't know exactly what the details were about yeah. how you weren't to comply, how you didn't comply. Wasn't it? And it was, yeah. it was interesting because one of the changes that was made was that um, agencies could charge requesters. Yeah. Which seemed like um, the, the wrong way around. I think they have been able to, ch- to charge for why. Yeah. It, it, is, it does kind of set up a... Yeah, it's, it, that's a whole interesting issue. That gets, I, saw, yeah. I saw one this week where like a council um, was trying to mm. charge $70,000 or something yeah. to release this information. It was just stupid. Yeah. I gather local government uh, uses it a lot more than central government. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's a huge mm-hmm. problem. But, you know, if you're going to look at enforcement, I think, you know, fines is an obvious one. Um, yeah. And whether you fine the department um, or you fine an individual, um, I think you would want it to be a fairly high test. I think you would obviously, it would not be, um, you wouldn't want to fine people for simply not complying with the act. I think you would want to know that they had deliberately, they knew that they weren't complying with the act, they had done it deliberately um, and, and those sorts of things. But but I think, I think there is room for a bit more enforcement because at the moment there are basically no consequences aside from uh, the ombudsman giving you a bit of a 
a tell-off. Um, there are no consequences for for breaching the act. And the previous ombudsman, you know, when she did her report, uh, not a game of hide and seek, acknowledged that the act was frequently breached um, and identified a couple of, of um, ways in which it was commonly breached. But there's no there's no consequences for that, and the ombudsman has no authority to deal with that, and that's a big problem. There's another problem, um, and I'll, I'll try and get the the details right, but, you know, public servants could be being continually educated on the Official Information Act and the Public Records Act and what they are um, required to do. But I gather that the responsibility for that has kind of fallen between the cracks of the State Services Commission and the Ombudsman's office. And the Chief Archivist. And then, well, yeah. Who we didn't even know existed and we started, <laughs> we started looking into this. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. Who, who, yeah. There's an argument that some, some people are like, so the Chief Archivist is currently in the DIA and, and, and some people are arguing that it should be made an Officer of Parliament. Um, we had a debate about that um, late one yeah. night, didn't we? Yeah. 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 Forgetting all our conversations. Uh, but, you know, we yeah, like to yeah. think about information from the point when it's generated or not to, you know, when the advice is given to when it is with, requested and to when or whether it is released. And we want to look at that whole journey that information takes. And that's why, you know, the Public Records Act and the Chief Archivist, whether the Chief Archivist should be and the Ombudsman should be the same person or in the same office, you know, these are all things we're looking at. So, I mean, a, a lot of people have talked about these issues for decades, you know, yeah. um, and not much seems to change. Yeah. So, how do you think Civic will be different? Well, we asked, this is a question we asked people when we met with them. We said, has anybody ever tried to change this? And if so, why didn't it work out? Because we don't want to make the same mistakes again. And basically what everybody said is, is actually, no, there's never actually been a concerted campaign, public campaign, to strengthen freedom of information in New Zealand. Other than hashtag fix the OAA. Other than just this hashtag on, on Twitter that exists, but is just a hashtag. Um, so so there's never been an actually an organised campaign about trying to, to strengthen freedom of information in New Zealand. And that's what we are planning to run, is a coordinated um, campaign that will get volunteers and um, you know phone ministers offices and meet with MPs and just generally apply pressure and create noise around this issue. Cool. And if people want to get involved in that? Uh, so they should go to our website, um, civicnz.org, uh, and, or, or they can find us on Facebook. But if you go to our website, you can give us your email address and uh, we can give you something very useful and important to do. Cool. So uh, we'll check those links in the in the description. Yeah. In the, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But that's thank you so much both for oh, coming thanks. along. Thanks for having so, us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
ended up voting in favour of creating a Māori ward on their councils. So Palmerston North, um, 31% in favour, 69 against. Manawatu, 22% in favour, 77 against. Whakatane, 44 in favour, 56 against. That was the highest um, support out of all of them. Western Bay Plenty, 22% in favour, 78 against. Kaikoura, the results, couldn't find them yet. Who knows, wasn't on their website. So disappointing results, but not unsurprising given that uh, the discriminatory extra step that's involved in creating a Māori ward on uh, councils compared to any other type of ward that you've got where the council can just decide to do it and where you allow all of the population of that district to vote for the creation or not um, is not surprising is, is unfortunately not surprising that they vote against it so I think that leads to why we should uh, change the law to get rid of this discriminatory extra step that we have for creating uh, improving Māori representation on our city and district councils around the, around the country so if you're interested in that I'm sure there'll be petitions and things like that that you can get on board with um, changing the law around that so until next time, uh, have a great week. Yeah.